Literary Forms in the Bible Understanding the style of a book you're reading, its literary form, can have an impact on how you interpret its message. Many of the Bible's books combine multiple forms, so it helps to be familiar with all of them, and understand what makes them different from each other. Here are the main ones you'll want to be familiar with as you study your Bible. Narrative or historical accounts. Study to learn important events and how God's people handled them. The narrative or historical literary form is a fancy way to talk about stories, and stories are what fill up most of the Bible's pages. The Bible's stories tell us how things came to be, or how certain events unfolded. In fact, the Bible begins with a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. The rest of Genesis takes us from the creation of the world all the way to the origins of the nation of Israel. Along the way, these stories do more than just recount history. They often give us valuable insights into what God expects from us, how we can avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, and what following God looks and feels like in practice. Some stories focus on a narrative, focusing on what a specific person thought, felt, and did during some event. Some stories will be focused on a historical account, providing information about an event from a broader perspective. An important thing to remember is that stories tell us what happened. They don't always tell us what was right. For example, Abraham lied to Abimelech and still acquired wealth in Genesis chapter 20. It can be tempting to conclude that God approved of Abraham's lie, but this story just tells us that those two things happened. Considering the rest of the Bible, a better conclusion is that God blessed Abraham in spite of his lie, not because of his lie. With that principle in mind, there are many useful lessons we can learn from the stories God chose to preserve through the Bible. Examples of narrative accounts in the Bible. Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 through 15, Joshua in the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapters 2 and 6, the entire books of Ruth and Esther, David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 and 9 verses 1 through 22. Law. Study to learn the kind of life God wants us to live, and the blessings that come with it. The law includes the do's and don'ts of the Bible, or the thou shalt's and thou shalt not's in some of the older translations. These laws make up a legal code of conduct. They describe how God expects us to behave as his followers. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. Becoming a Christian means entering into the new covenant with God. See Jeremiah 31 verse 31, Luke 22 verse 20, and Hebrews 9 verse 15, among others, which requires us to understand the laws or commandments governing that new covenant. Not every law in the Old Testament is directly applicable under the new covenant, but they are worth understanding. Some laws were civil ordinances for the physical nation of Israel. Some laws pertained to worshiping and sacrificing at the temple and were superseded by Christ's sacrifice but many of the remaining laws still apply directly or in principle to Christians today. Read more in our online article, Laws of the Bible. Most of the Bible's law is contained within the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, although these books also contain narratives, historical accounts, poetry, and even prophecy. In Judaism, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, a Hebrew word for instruction or teaching. There are two main types of laws in the Bible, mandatory and prohibitory. A mandatory or compulsory law is something we must do. A prohibitory law is something we must not do. 
The Ten Commandments, which serve as the core laws of the entire Christian religion, contain both mandatory and prohibitory laws. Remember the Sabbath day is mandatory. You shall not steal is prohibitory. Anytime we act against God's law, either by doing something we shouldn't do or by not doing something we should do, we commit sin because sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3 verse 4. Most of Leviticus deals with the penalty of those sins. By studying those laws, we can begin to understand why the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was such an important moment in the plan of God. Examples of Laws in the Bible The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 1-17 through 17. The Feast of the Lord, Leviticus 23 Clean and Unclean Food Laws, Leviticus 11 Tithing, Leviticus 27, verse 30 and Matthew 23, verse 23 Poetry Study to learn the feelings and thoughts of authors inspired by God Poetry is a form of writing that relies heavily on conveying feelings and emotions through imagery, sound, and rhythm. Unlike prose, which is written in sentences and paragraphs, poetry is organized into verses and stanzas. Poetry makes up a significant part of the Bible. Some books are written entirely in poetry, while others switch between poetry and prose. Prophecy is often conveyed through poetry, and characters in narrative accounts will occasionally recite a poem. Even laws like the Ten Commandments might make use of a poetic form. Most Bibles make it easy to tell where passages of poetry begin by changing how the words themselves are presented, usually by indenting the text in a special way, as in Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him, for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Poetry is not always meant to be taken literally. Analysis is required to understand if a verse of poetry is literal or figurative. For example, one psalm says, Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Psalm 98 verse 8. Obviously, rivers don't have hands to clap, and hills are inanimate objects incapable of rejoicing. But the psalmist is painting a picture of the entire earth shouting joyfully to God. See verse 4. The picture isn't a literal one. It's meant to convey a feeling of joy and excitement. Another psalm says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will change them, and they will be changed. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 26. The imagery gives us a glimpse into God's divine might. We struggle to understand the massive scale of the universe we live in. But God could change it all out as easily as we swap out an old jacket. Of all the literary forms, poetry suffers the most during the translation process. Although the Bible's poetry in English retains a great deal of its beauty, it's impossible to preserve all the pacing, sounds, wordplay, and other literary devices present in the original languages. For example, Psalm 119 works its way through the Hebrew alphabet. Each of its 22 stanzas focus on a different Hebrew letter, and each of the eight verses in each stanza begin with that same letter. Verses 1 through 8, for example, all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Verses 9 through 16 all begin with the next letter, Beth. Other psalms take a similar approach. Micah chapter 1 verses 10 through 15 is filled with wordplay that relies on sound-alike words and the meanings behind the names of towns and cities in Israel. The inhabitant of Za'anan, meaning going forth, does not go out. 
And in verse 15, the inhabitant of Merishah, meaning inheritance, is promised an heir, and so on. However, while English poetry often involves rhyming the sounds of words, Hebrew poetry often centers around rhyming concepts. By placing actions or images next to each other, authors can highlight striking similarities and glaring contrasts that stick with the reader. For example, when the sons of Korah wrote, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God, Psalm 42 verse 1, they were using one concept, a thirsty, panting deer, to illustrate another, their desire to be in the presence of God. Rhymes like these survive translation fairly intact, since they largely depend on concepts instead of the words themselves. Examples of poetry in the Bible. The book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and many prophetic books, Isaiah especially, most of Job, various parts of the epistles, and songs of praise in Revelation. Wisdom Literature. Study to learn practical advice for making wise decisions in day-to-day -day life. Wisdom literature was a popular literary genre in the Old Testament era. Many cultures, including the Sumerians, Assyrians, Egyptians, and Babylonians, produced works in this style. The purpose of wisdom literature was to provide insight into how and why the world works. Generally, this insight came through the words of wise sages who offered explanations and advice in philosophical matters both big and small. The Bible's wisdom literature is unique. Because these books were inspired by God, they are more than interesting historical artifacts. The insights they contain are still valid and indispensable thousands of years later. God promised to give King Solomon a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. 1 Kings 3 verse 12. As a result, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. 1 Kings 4, verses 29 through 32, ESV. While we don't have all these proverbs and songs, Solomon is responsible for several of the Bible's books of wisdom literature, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. He also wrote two of the 150 songs in the book of Psalms. The book of Job deals with the very heavy subject of why God allows evil. It follows the story of a righteous man who loses nearly everything, grappling to understand what he perceived as God's apparent unfairness. Psalms is a collection of 150 songs directed to God. Many are songs of praise, others are cries for divine intervention, and some are shouts of frustration and confusion. Most are some combination of the above. David wrote the majority of the Psalms, but nearly 50 are not attributed to any author, and a handful of other authors, including Moses and Solomon, wrote the remainder. Proverbs is filled with short, pithy sayings to help others know wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1 verse 2. Many of these Proverbs are practical and straightforward, while still inviting deeper reflection on spiritual subjects. The Song of Solomon is a love song written by Solomon. It is a unique book in the Bible. It never mentions the name of God, focusing instead on the beauty of sexual intimacy in marriage. It repeatedly cautions, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7, 
3 verse 5, and 8 verse 4. Ecclesiastes appears to have been written much later in Solomon's life and focuses on the futility of living life without God, the conclusion of the whole matter, as recorded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. Wisdom literature in the Bible. The book of Job, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Prophecy. Study to learn what God has done, is doing, and will do. In its simplest form, prophecy includes anything anyone says under the inspiration of God. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, that includes reproving and admonishing the wicked, or comforting the afflicted, or revealing hidden things, especially by foretelling future events. Generally, though, when people talk about prophecy, they're referring to that last category, the foretelling of future events. Over a quarter of the Bible contains these kinds of predictive prophecies, and they often appear in poetic form. Many Old Testament books are dedicated entirely to prophecies of the future. We often refer to these books as the major and minor prophets. That is, the prophets with long books, major, and the prophets with shorter books, minor. But prophecies are sprinkled throughout the Bible, from the first prophecy about Jesus Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to Christ's final promise to us in Revelation 22, verse 20. There are three main types of prophecies. Future prophecies, fulfilled prophecies, and prophecies with dual or multiple fulfillments. We can find examples of all three in the book of Daniel. Future prophecies refer to events that God promises will happen in the future. All prophecies begin as future prophecies. Daniel was told of a time when many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2. These resurrections haven't yet come to pass, but they will. They are an integral part of God's plan, and we can count on their happening. Fulfilled prophecies have already come and gone. For example, God gave Daniel a vision of the kings of Media and Persia in Daniel 8, verse 20, being defeated by the kingdom of Greece, verse 21, after which Greece would splinter into four kingdoms, but not with its power, verse 22. That prophecy was fulfilled when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in 331 BC, with his kingdom splintering into four warring factions after his death in 323 BC. Dual fulfillment prophecies are prophecies that God intends to fulfill more than once. Daniel received a warning about the abomination of desolation, which would be established in God's temple by a king who would take away the daily sacrifices, Daniel 11 verse 31. This was first fulfilled by a Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who defiled God's temple in 167 BC by setting up a statue of Zeus and having biblically unclean swine sacrificed on the altar. And yet, 200 years later, Jesus warned the Jews of Jerusalem, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16. Although the abomination of desolation had already happened once, Jesus was explaining that it was going to happen again. Prophecy can be difficult to interpret with exact precision. Some prophecies are fairly clear and give us an outline of what is to come, but other prophecies rely on imagery that can be interpreted and misinterpreted different ways, and it's not always clear what prophecies are awaiting a second fulfillment. Unless God himself explains them, 
we should be cautious about adopting a firm stance on particular prophecies. Remember that Jesus Christ's first coming was prophesied many times in the Old Testament over the course of thousands of years, and yet everyone, including his own disciples, misunderstood the role that he had come to play. See Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. After Jesus died and was resurrected, he walked his disciples through the relevant prophecies concerning himself. The prophecies had been there all along, but they didn't make sense until God himself connected the dots. If prophecy is so easy to misunderstand, why study it at all? For two reasons. First, fulfilled prophecies are a reminder that God is in control of everything, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46 verse 10. Second, unfulfilled prophecies offer us a glimpse into important future events that God has promised to bring about. By familiarizing ourselves with the outline of these events, we can begin to see the beauty of a plan that has been unfolding for thousands of years, and which will continue to unfold long into the future. To paraphrase Paul, now all we can see of God is like a cloudy picture in a mirror. Later, we will see him face to face. We don't know everything, but then we will, just as God completely understands us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Contemporary English Version. Prophecy is our glimpse into a cloudy mirror, but even that cloudy glimpse can encourage us to stay focused on and dedicated to God and His plan. Examples of prophecies in the Bible. Jacob's last words to his son in Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 28. The major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Malachi, etc. Matthew chapter 24, and the book of Revelation. Gospel accounts. Study to learn why the life and death of Jesus Christ serves as a cornerstone of our Christian identity. The Bible's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a special kind of narrative account. Each gospel provides a unique perspective on the same historic event, the life and death of Jesus Christ. The word gospel is translated from the Greek word euangelion, meaning good news. The four Gospels appear to each have been intended for different audiences, as they each focus on different aspects of what Jesus said and did during his human life on earth. Matthew, also known as Levi, was a Jewish tax collector who had become a disciple of Jesus Christ. His Gospel account highlights Christ's role as the prophesied son of David, Matthew 1 verse 1, continually pointing out the events and actions that fulfilled what was spoken, Matthew 2 verse 17, by the prophets. Mark, whose full name was John Mark, is attested in early Christian literature as the author of the Gospel of Mark. This same literature also suggests that Mark wrote his account based on the preaching of the Apostle Peter. This Gospel account highlights Christ's role as the Son of God, Mark 1 verse 1, and is written with a sense of urgency. He used the word immediately 36 times, writing the entire book as if events were actively unfolding around the reader. Luke was identified by Paul as the beloved physician in Colossians 4 verse 14, a Gentile believer who became a disciple of Jesus Christ. His gospel account highlights Christ's role as the Son of Man, Luke 5 24, emphasizing the compassion and humanity displayed by Jesus. Luke's account also shines a spotlight on the women of the early church. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, John 21 verse 20 and, according to extra-biblical sources, the last surviving apostle, 
His gospel account highlights Christ's role as the Word, John 1 verse 1, a divine being who is with God while also being God, who temporarily became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. John made sure to emphasize that Jesus was entirely divine and entirely human, likely in an effort to combat the growing movement of Gnosticism, which argued that Jesus only appeared to have come in the flesh. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic gospels, a fancy word meaning taking a common view. The synoptic gospels generally approach Christ's life from similar angles and discuss the same general events. John's gospel, on the other hand, records many events not discussed in the other three. Gospel accounts in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Epistles, or letters. Study to learn what it means to live as a Christian in a world that rejects God. The majority of the books in the New Testament are epistles, or letters, written to the early church, and the majority of those epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. Most of these Pauline epistles, as they're known, were written to individual congregations. A few, known as the prison epistles, were written by Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. The remainder of Paul's letters, known as the pastoral epistles, are filled with advice and instruction for two new pastors, Titus and Timothy. The other New Testament epistles are known as the general epistles. Rather than being addressed to a single congregation, these letters are written to the church at large by a variety of other authors. John, Peter, James, Jude, etc. Because the epistles were written to real Christians facing real issues, they are an incredible source of instruction, encouragement, correction, and insight for us today. The Corinthians were dealing with an openly sinning member of the church. The Galatians had begun to think their own righteousness was enough to earn salvation. The people who received the book of Hebrews had questions about how the sacrifice of Christ meshed with the animal sacrifices of the temple. Philemon was having trouble relating to a slave who had become a fellow Christian. Timothy was a young man with a heavy responsibility, and on and on it goes. Whatever epistle you sit down to read, you're guaranteed to come across priceless gems that will offer perspective and direction as you strive to obey a perfect God while living in an imperfect world. Epistles in the Bible Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude.